Dolly, published October 1922 in Black Mask Magazine. My father was a doctor, a well-known alienist. My mother was dead, and we lived alone but for the servants in a large house in the city. The summers we spent on our farm up the state, I too was studying for the profession. Now, my father held views of his own on mental diseases, and was especially set against insane asylums. Madhouses breed insanity, I had heard him say, over and over again. The hopeless cases only should be sent there. The chances against recovery increased 50% in such surroundings, was his claim. And I? Did I agree with my father? At that time, I was not fitted to hold an opinion, and now... My fitness on such a subject may be great, but it would hardly be considered by others. So on this, I hold my peace. I was in my senior year at the medical school when Dolly came into my life. I can see her now, her long golden hair reaching nearly to her waist, and her eyes. Were they black? The color of those eyes I was never sure of. Sometimes I thought they were brown, and then again it seemed that they were black. Great liquid pools that one could see deep down into and read. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But it was her throat that held me spellbound. Her throat and neck. Soft, velvet, pearl-like, satin. Not an alabaster white, nor a creamy white. Perhaps more like the whiteness of milk. A very thin and very clear milk. But it had the touch of silk and was warm and palpitating as I ran my fingers along its velvety surface. She would lie in my arms, her whole body would quiver, and from that soft, warm throat, vibrations, like little electric shocks, would shoot through my fingers and, rising to my brain, throw a haze over my senses. Yes, I loved Dolly. She had all the beauties of a goddess. But above all, I loved that throat. At first I never thought of marriage, and then I thought of nothing else. It came over me that I must have Dolly. So I threw all caution to the wind, and dined openly with her in one of the restaurants which my father frequented. And he saw us. That was what I most desired, for to see Dolly was to love her. I knew that my father bore, in puritanical abhorrence, a deep animosity against the stage. And Dolly was of the chorus of a big musical review. But her charms held no attraction for him. He spoke to me that night, alone. He was very calm and very quiet, but he made it clear that I must give up Dolly. He did not ask me to decide. I do not think that he even considered that. He just laid down the law. I must give up Dolly. I told Dolly, with a great bitterness in my heart, told her that I would give up everything for her, father, profession, all, but she would not have it. My life's work came first, and yet I might have both. Then came the plan. I do not know in whose mind it first found birth. Perhaps it was in mine. Perhaps it was in Dolly's. And then again it might have originated in the mind of her brother Arthur, who was always with her. However, we talked it over. It seemed impossible at first, and then the thing grew grew in such magnitude that I do not think one of us recognized the possibility of failure. I could have Dolly, not only with my father's consent, but at his earnest desire. Still it was with some feeling of fear, fear and anxiety, 
that I first put the scheme into actual operation. It was my custom each night, after I had finished work at school, to present my day's journal to my father. He and I would then go over the work together. In this journal, I had for several years kept a record of my daily doings, both at school and in society. It was perhaps a month after our first and last interview regarding Dolly that I sat opposite my father in his study, prepared for our usual evening's discussion. Well, said he, looking up from the book he had been reading, what's in the journal for tonight? There was that kindly smile in his eyes, that smile which I now recall so well. Tonight? I tried to make my voice ring false, and indeed succeeded with little effort. I was about to tell my first direct lie to the father who had been more a companion and a friend than aught else. Oh, about my journal, I forced a laugh. Why, I left it at school. He said nothing. His eyebrows just raised a trifle, and the lines along his forehead seemed to deepen. He could not have failed to catch the hesitancy in my voice. And so I laid the seed which was later to bear fruit fruit that in my wildest imagination I could not have pictured. On the second night it was almost ten, a good hour and a half after the usual time, before he approached the subject of my journal. He put the question so suddenly that I was startled. I had been waiting for it, but no amount of acting on my part could have brought the start which his sudden question surprised me into. I can't find the journal, I stammered, and then added, I will get a hold of it tomorrow. For the first time, I saw that he doubted me. Somehow, I think that he knew that I had lied. But he just looked at me and said nothing. Nor did he suggest any course of work. His eyes just rested on mine a moment, and then returned to his book. An hour later, he retired. And for the first time since I had peeked into one of his forbidden medical books when a very little boy, he did not bid me good night. Later... On my way to my room, I paused at my father's door. I was about to knock, then, thinking better of it, I went to my room. I undressed, but could not sleep. I think it was about one o'clock when I switched on the light in red. A half hour later, there was a gentle knock on my door. You up, Harold? It was my father. Yes, was all I said. Not sick? He questioned. No, not sick. Good. Then a pause. I forgot to bid you good night. His voice was very low. Yes, I answered. Oh, why hadn't I spoken then? Another moment of silence, and then, Good night, Harold. And I heard his slippered feet creak along the hallway toward his room. I looked at my journal a dozen times after his footsteps had died away, and more than once I was on the point of tearing it up, but I didn't nor did I write in it again that morning. It was Dolly who strengthened my failing resolution, and it was Dolly and her brother who guided my writing in that deadly journal, which was later to play such a tragic part in all our lives. But when it came to writing about her throat, and my desire to let my fingers glide along its smooth surface, I needed no guidance. My pen fairly flew over the paper. That throat, that... Well, it held a terrible fascination for me, a passion that is indescribable. And two weeks passed. My father and I still sat together in the evening, but he never mentioned the journal. 
Little did he know that he was soon to see it again. For that book, wherein lay our hopes, was now waiting and ready for him. Yes, the book, the plan which was to bring Dolly and me together. I had filled it day after day with thoughts of Dolly, weird, uncanny thoughts, thoughts that could only come from a disordered mind. It was mostly about her throat and the fascination which it held for me. That if Dolly was not for me, she would be for no one else. For when my fingers played along that soft white surface came a desire, a desire which I knew I could not long control, to close my fingers tightly about that warm flesh and crush forever the breath from that beautiful body. For if Dolly is not for me, I wrote, then she will not live for any other man. To know that other fingers caressed that swan-like neck that lips other than mine. But it was mostly about the throat, I wrote. It came easier and seemed more natural. And now the book was hidden where my father would find it. Hidden away behind a great reference book which he used about once a month. And that day was approaching the day when he would read what I had written and believe that my mind was slowly traveling the way of many he had attended. Came the night when I knew that he would have recourse to that reference book. Pleading a headache, I retired to my room. It was late, very late, when I heard my father coming up the wide old-fashioned stairs. His step was slow and unsteady, and it seemed to me that he paused upon the first landing to rest. I lay quietly in my bed as I heard him pause a moment at my door, as though listening. Then he knocked so softly that I scarcely heard it. But the door was not locked, and he turned the knob and entered. A moment later I knew that he was standing close to my bed and looking down at me, though I kept my eyes tightly shut. He did not speak and he did not touch me, but I knew that he was studying my face intently in the dim rays of moon that cut through the open window. I turned in the bed so that I would not have my face toward him, for I felt an uncanny desire to open my eyes. He stood so for several moments, and then I heard him go softly from the room. I thought that he sighed as the door closed behind him, but I could not be sure. The next morning at breakfast I knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he had read my journal. The truth was written in every line of his face. I had never stopped to think how hard it would hit him. But tragedy, deep and terrible tragedy, lay hidden in his swollen eyes, and the lines about the corner of his mouth were now deep furrows. That he had not slept, I knew. That he had gone to bed at all, I doubted and then his pitiful effort to be himself, the attempt for that easy indifference which he always assumed when he talked to patients. It was all I could do to keep from crying out the truth. Why, as his eyes would furtively study my face as he looked up from his untouched food, it came to me that he was an old man, a very old man, indeed. I do not know how I got through that meal, but I did, and went straight to Dolly, it was while I was there that my father came. I must have passed him going down the stairs as he came up in the elevator. He put the thing straight up to Dolly, showed her my journal, told her of his dislike in her profession, and gave her his opinion that I was on the border of insanity. He was very cold and distant, she said, but he asked her if, under the present conditions, she still wished to marry me, 
give up the stage and live under his roof. He made it entirely clear to her that his love for his boy came first, and that in the fulfillment of my desire for her lay my recovery. She acted up to him, showed astonishment at my condition, and then convinced him that her one desire in life was the same as his. I came first. One week later, Dolly and I were quietly married. Yes, Dolly was mine. That wonderful joy of possession was all mine. The assurance that no fingers but mine would play about that luxurious wife, all that that dear name meant, was now mine. My studies were taken up with a new interest, and the hours I gave to it I did not seem to miss from Dolly. My love was now equally divided. The two great passions of my life were gratified, my profession and my love. But at what a price! Although the sunken eyes of my father returned somewhat to their old vigor, the light had greatly died out of them. The lines of his face, which had so deepened that night, remained deep, and within the next six months his hair, which had only the slightest touch of gray, became a snowy white. He treated Dolly with an exaggerated politeness, and for a time watched her with an unconcealed anxiety, which caused me strange embarrassment. Dolly seemed happy in her new life, doing everything possible to break down the barrier that father had erected between us. At times she would leave us to go south and visit her relatives. To these trips father contributed magnanimously. Always careful concerning money, it seemed strange to see him so willing to open up his purse at the slightest request from Dolly. Every luxury that money could buy was hers. I never accompanied Dolly on her southern trips, but her brother always went with her. I threw myself heart and soul into my studies in an effort to repay my father for his kindness and my wrong. It was seldom that my father spoke to me of Dolly, and when he did it was always in the same quiet way. He came late in the evening when we were alone and seemed closest to each other. And do you still think as much of your wife? he would say. More, more, I would always answer. And then he would place his hand upon my shoulder and smile down at me, a sad, wistful smile. And she deserves it, my boy. Yes, she deserves it. She has done more for you than you will ever know. His words seemed forced, as though he were giving her the praise begrudgingly. Then he would replace the book that we had been reading together and go straight to his room. It was as if he had accomplished a duty a duty which his strict sense of right forbade him ignore. For a day or two after this, he would be more considerate of Dolly, but his attentions were forced, noticeably forced. Then, as the days went by, he would return again to that distant politeness. And she? She always spoke highly of him, and she deplored the great gulf which somehow lay between them. And so, two years passed and I finished my studies and took up my work in my father's office. Then came the change. It was while we were in our country home, and Arthur, Dolly's brother, was visiting us. I remember the day well. It was a beautiful summer afternoon, and Dolly and her brother were out in the little summer house at the end of the garden. They were planning another trip south. She had spoken of it to me, and I was waiting for father to return for a walk about the grounds. He was in the library when I put the request to him, and he stood up, 
and brought his fist heavily down upon the table. There is no money for her, he told me, almost brutally. Then he seemed to obtain control of himself. A wife's place is with her husband, with you. And not another word could I get out of him that day. But I date the rapidly failing health of my father from that day. What had brought on this sudden change toward Dolly, I did not know, nor could she enlighten me. She only frowned and bit her lips when I mentioned his actions. How did she take this change? At first with pretended indifference, but my father's manner toward her became so coldly polite and distant that it was impossible to pretend ignorance. Later she changed, meeting his cold, hard looks with defiance, but this was soon stopped. Few people could look my father directly in the eyes. It came to me then that Dolly feared my father. Then she took to having her meals served in her room. Once only did I approach my father on his strange attitude, and then he met my question with such a look as I have never seen on his face before. But he said nothing, and I... I was glad to drop the subject. Then came the end. Although my father had been failing, it was a shock nevertheless. A sudden stroke, and one hour later, he died in my arms. Dolly was in his bedroom at the time. She had helped me take him there from the living room. When I knew that the end was certain, I leaned down and whispered in his ear the fraud we had perpetrated upon him nearly three years before. He heard me and understood, but although his lips moved, no words came from between them. Then he lay still, and when I thought it was the last, he gave a convulsive throb, and before I could restrain him, sat bolt upright in bed. He stretched his right arm out to its full length and pointed his finger at Dolly, who stood by the foot of the bed. His eyes were bright and clear and filled with that one passion which I have never seen in them before. Hate. God, what an effort he made to speak. His whole frame trembled violently beneath the hands I held upon his shoulders. There was accusation, terrible accusation, in every movement he made toward my wife. At the time I thought that he was exonerating me and placing the blame on Dolly, the blame of our plot. But he did not speak. He never spoke again. He just sat there a moment, then fell back in my arms, dead. It came to me as I knelt there by his bedside that I had killed him, that it was his constant doubt of my mental condition which finally wore him down. So I knelt a while with his cold, dead hand pressed close against my wet cheek. Once I cast my eyes toward Dolly. Her eyes were dry, and for a minute it seemed that a smile hovered about the corners of her mouth. But it was not there when I brushed the tears from my eyes. I had been mistaken. Yet... Something told me that from now on Dolly and I would be... different. The dead had come between us. A week later, and my father's body hardly cold in the little cemetery a mile from the house, the old churchyard wherein lay his father and his father's father, and Dolly and I had our first altercation. It was the will that irritated her, I think, but nothing could justify her language. Father left the income on his estate to me, to me during my lifetime. In the event of my death, the entire estate went to charity. There was no provision made for Dolly. She spoke disrespectfully of him. Worse than that, she called him vile names, words that I never thought could come from between those sweet lips. 
words which were as foul as any woman of the streets might use. And I, in a burst of anger, resented them, resented them most strongly. I gave her to understand that such language would not be tolerated under my dead father's roof. She did not say anything. She just looked at me. I could see that she had not expected any show of affection on my part. Indeed, she felt that she held me powerless in the palm of her hand. And she had, but that was before I had glanced up from my father's dead body and seen the cold, hard look in her eyes. I know that she expected me to come to her that night, that we might have made it up as more than possible. But I could not see her. Something kept me away, an indefinable something. Yes, the shadow of the dead had come between us. A week passed, and I would gladly have gone to Dolly, each of those seven long days. But I didn't. Often, as I stopped at her door at night and was about to knock gently, a hand seemed to thrust itself before me and hold me back. Not there, not there, a voice seemed to say within me, and I would go to my room and to bed but not to sleep. God, how I feared to sleep! Dreams, dreams, terrible dreams! No sooner would my eyes close than I would see again the last dying agonies of my father. His accusation against Dolly. Could he have meant something else, something that I did not know? And then, when my throbbing temples and aching eyes would stand no more, would come the needle, the danger of which I knew, yet the relief of which I sought. Not that it made my nights any the better, but it gave me much needed sleep. However... Nothing could drive away those terrible dreams. Always my father would come, and taking me by the hand, lead me to my wife's door and point again as he had pointed that last night, but he could not speak, though his efforts to tell me something were most pitiful. So the days passed, and I wandered about the house, not even thinking of returning to my practice in the city. Dolly's brother was with her now, but I saw little of them. When I did walk suddenly upon them, I always found them talking in whispers, whispers which would break off sharp and quick at my approach. She did not look at me in that cold manner which she had first assumed after our heated words. Rather did she seem sad and preoccupied, and looked at me queerly. The gap between us was ever widening, and I do not know that I wish to lessen it now. Then one evening I wandered out into the garden, a thing I had not done since my father's death. First, somehow, I feared the dark. It was a bright moonlit night, and I walked deep in thought toward the little summer house at the end of the grounds. It was here that I used to sit upon my father's knee and study my lessons so many, many years ago. I don't know what made me approach that little summer house across the soft, smooth grass instead of on the gravel path which led to the entrance. But I walked silently and peeped through the thick vines, half expecting to see my father sitting there. So I looked, and nearly cried out, for there in the clear moonlight was my wife, and she was in the arms of a man. They half turned, and I saw the face of Arthur, her brother, but the sight which greeted my aching eyes was no brotherly embrace. I saw, saw enough to convince me that my wife and Arthur were not brother and sister. For the kisses which he gave and which she returned were those which passed between man and woman, the man and the woman. So, this man was my wife's lover, had always been so, even since that day that I had first held Dolly in my arms. Tomorrow, tomorrow is the day, 
I heard him say as he leaned down and kissed her throat, my throat. As I turned and stumbled across the lawn to the house, the whole truth dawned upon me. It was just such a living picture as this, which my father had seen the day he refused me further money for Dolly. He, too, knew the terrible truth and could not tell me. He feared for my brain. What a burden he must have carried with him to the grave. And then, when he knew, when I told him that my brain was sound and of our plot, he had tried to speak to warn me against this woman. So he accused her of her falseness. But had he accused her of more? God, a great shudder shook my frame. A terrible truth was dawning upon me. But was it a truth? Then something snapped within my head. My sluggish brain cleared, and it was as though I saw things crystal clear. I laughed aloud as I paced up and down my room. Another man had kissed her throat. Three o'clock the next morning found me in that little cemetery by my father's grave. With a pick and shovel I went to work. There, in the dim light of a lantern, I performed an autopsy upon the dead body of my father. It was nearly six o'clock when I returned home, but my heart was light and free, and I believe that I whistled a tune. Never had I felt so well and free from care. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that my father had been poisoned, and that his will protected me from a similar fate. I wondered if he knew and died that I might live, for I knew that he thought Dolly was necessary to my sanity. How simple the whole thing had been. I was known so well in that little town. There would be no suspicion, for my father had died in my arms. Yes, Dolly and her love were very clever, but they had reckoned without me, the son of the murdered father. For the first time since my father's death, I joined Dolly and Arthur at breakfast. They were nervous, or very excited, and ceased their whispering when I came in. Arthur was in my father's seat at the head of the table, and half rose as I entered, but I took my own seat and only laughed. Yes, laughed long and loud, for had he not said that this was the day? And I laughed, because he did not know how true his words were, and I did, for I knew that this was the day. I talked and laughed and told them little anecdotes about my father, and then when I would look at their faces I would laugh again. Yes, it was a most pleasant morning to think that I could laugh, and this man in my father's seat had kissed Dolly's throat. They all looked at me strangely, even the servants, but I did not care. I was very happy. My father had been poisoned, and this man in his seat had kissed my wife upon the throat, and I knew. So you see that the whole thing was really very funny, not to them, but to me. Arthur and Dolly talked earnestly in the hall as I finished my breakfast, and then Arthur took his hat and went out. I heard the motor drive away and knew that he was going into town. Dolly, I called, stepping into the hall, won't you keep me company in the dining room while I finish my breakfast? She drew back as I approached her. I can't, she stammered. I have a headache and I am going to my room to lie down. I think that I read hate in her eyes, or was it fear? As you wish, I laughed, for I had the key to her room in my pocket. Your throat is very beautiful this morning, Dolly, I called up the stairs after her. It still holds the same attraction for me. Somehow I did not laugh 
as I said this, but pronounced the words very slowly and distinctly. She had turned on the stairs as I spoke and looked back. Then, turning again, she ran lightly up the few remaining steps, and I heard her door close, but not lock. It was nearly twelve o'clock when Arthur returned. There were three men with him, and they followed him into the library where I was sitting. It was Arthur who spoke, but I knew before he said a word. You are not very well, Harold, he said. We are doing what is best for you. Now be a good fellow and go quietly where these men are going to take you. How I laughed. The humor of it. Dolly had had me observed. The court had judged me insane. It was a simple matter, a good lawyer, and my old journal. Then I recognized one of the three men as a doctor who had examined me for insurance only a week before. Is this true? I turned to a man in a frock coat who appeared to be the leader, for in his hand he held a slip of paper, a court order, I thought. It is true, he told me. You need not worry. You are to be taken to a very pleasant institution where every attention will be given you. Then he consulted his watch. You may wish to bid your wife goodbye, and time flies. So he did not guess the true state of affairs, and how calm I was. My wife, I echoed his words. To be sure, I may wish to bid her goodbye. Perhaps you, I turned to Arthur. Perhaps you, her brother, will tell her. And as he hesitated, and then stepped toward the door, I added, If you are her brother, and if you can... What do you mean? He swung suddenly about. His face was ashen. But I did not speak, for at that moment the frightened little maid of my wife dashed into the room. Madame! Madame! she cried. Madame is dead! Murdered! Somebody has choked her to death! God, there are fingerprints all over her throat! All looked at me. I think that there was horror in their faces. None of them had the wit to see the joke. But I, I laughed aloud. The insane can do no wrong, I smiled upon them. You have come at a most opportune time to relieve me, shall I say, from a most embarrassing situation. Gentlemen, I bowed, I go with you with pleasure and thank you most heartily. So with a laugh, I stepped across the room toward them.